ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you travel anywhere in the world, the one thing that's usually local, and it's usually very local, is the milk you pour over your cereal or you put in your cuppa first thing in the morning. It straight away places you. I tend to always have a look at the bottle, I flip it over, I like to see where my milk has come from. But increasingly the source of Australian milk is becoming more homogenised. And I do mean homogenised, I'm not talking about pasteurised here. Processors are trucking milk thousands of k's to be bought by customers in neighbouring states. And that's pushing independent dairy farmers in Queensland out of business. This is a decision that I think for our whole family is actually is pretty soul-destroying. Um, we've milked cows here for 117 years. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country Park. But first to Ballarat, where police are investigating a rally held yesterday where a group of about 30 people wearing black marched through the city shouting white supremacist slogans. The demonstration happened at midday and coincided with Eureka Day, which is December 3rd. Ballarat's mayor, Des Hudson, has told the ABC this morning the town would not tolerate antisocial behaviour such as this. Our reporter, Laura Mayers, is in Ballarat. Now, Laura, can you describe this procession of men yesterday? Yeah, so we can see in photos and in videos uh, and obviously in in person yesterday, these men were in a group of 20 to 30 people walking around the main parts of town. They were covering their faces with black balaclavas. Some were wearing hoodies, uh, some were wearing hats, um, and they were carrying around uh, banners, uh, you know, that said white supremacist slogans. They were shouting um, and they were they were seen very publicly by a lot of people. Was it possible to make out their age despite them being covered in black from head to toe? Um, I'd imagine from the way they move, you might be able to get an idea of what age group they were. You could sort of tell that they were, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s range. Um, You know, whether or not that these people are from Ballarat themselves, obviously that is something that we we don't know. They could be local. They could have been flown in. Uh, It's hard to say. Was every face covered? So there was a, a leader who was uh, at the front of the uh, of the rally who kept his face uncovered, and he's fairly notorious across Victoria for similar demonstrations. Now I can imagine thirty, and we're assuming they're men, but it seems likely that they're men walking around town in the middle of the day, all covered in black, chanting those kind of slogans. It was quite a threatening presence. Was there many people around observing this? Yeah, there were quite a few people, more than normal uh, on a on a Sunday afternoon uh, around the Ballarat area because of the Spilt Milk Festival, which is a large festival we host here every year. Uh, So that's the reason that there are so many photos and videos. Now, this demonstration, Laura, happened um, on Eureka Day, which is December 3rd, a significant day in Ballarat history and in Australian history. Was that by chance or was that significant in terms of the protesters? It's our understanding that it was uh, 
targeted to be on that day. So in 1854, there was an attack by Victorian colonial military forces on protesting miners at the Eureka Stockade for for that very famous uprising. It's our understanding that they were sort of drawing parallels between themselves uh, and, and, and drawing those comparisons between themselves and the members of the Eureka Stockade, which uh, local m- members of you know politicians and and also from the trades hall have just said, well, we saw people involved in the Eureka Stockade that were across all different creeds and races, so it's not necessarily a comparison that is accurate. So, what about the town this morning? This is a significant thing to happen on a day of celebration. How have they responded today? I think that there's pretty widespread condemnation from uh, Ballarat locals, not only from local politicians, but just from the community in general and social media. We're seeing a lot of people uh, call them out for their behaviour and say it is unacceptable. Um, So local MP Juliana Addison, who's actually a former educator, uh, spoke about it this morning and spoke about her horror uh, as she has been uh, teaching teenagers uh, for a long time. And we did see that a teenager was arrested uh, in relation, not not affiliated with the rally, um, but it is our understanding that uh, he's alleged to have thrown a Nazi salute, which is now banned uh, in Victoria recently. Uh, so Juliana said that, you know, for someone so young, it's pretty horrifying and she would like to see, you know, better, stronger education uh, around, the, around the Holocaust and around uh, the genocide in Second World War. And here's what she had to say about that. We are an inclusive community where everybody is welcome. I've had calls this morning with the African community who are feeling very concerned about this. I was very proud to speak in Parliament against the Nazi salute. As a history teacher, I've spent my life educating teenagers about genocide, about Holocaust. So for me, I know this is such an important issue. An emotional Ballarat MP, Juliana Addison, there speaking to the ABC. Now, the town's mayor also said he had fielded calls from concerned Ballarat locals. Let's hear what he had to say. I think that's why we need to be out talking about the issue today and absolutely saying that is not something that we support, that Ballarat is a welcoming community. We're an intercontinent, an intercultural city, a refugee welcoming zone, um, and there are so many things that we support all parts of our community. So I think being out on the front foot today and saying this group, whether they've targeted Ballarat because of spilt milk or because of the 169th anniversary of Eureka, I doubt that these people live in our community. But I had an email from a concerned member of our African community last night that reached out to me in an email that felt very intimidated. And the thought, he also said he doesn't believe they're from here, but he said, how do I know? It could be my bank teller. It could be the person I buy coffee from. Well, these people that now look at me differently that I feel unsafe. That's Ballarat Mayor Des Hudson. That's quite something how he's describing that man calling him Laura. Has the ABC heard similar calls on Talkback? Has the response been there? Yeah, we have heard similar calls um, from the local community who are really concerned. Some are, are definitely fearful. I think it's uh, a, the scary part for a lot of people is the fact that we don't know who was involved in that rally with their with their faces covered. Uh, and and uh, as Des mentioned there, you know, it could be the person who makes your coffee. Uh, it could be, you know, someone who lives down the street. And it is just causing a bit of concern and a bit of worry uh, in the local community at the moment.
Dublin. Now, the police are, in, are involved and they're investigating this particular march, but particularly the, the reports about a Nazi salute being made alongside the demonstration. What do we know about their investigation? So we know that the uh, 15-year-old boy who was arrested uh, in relation to throwing that Nazi salute was not actually uh, not actually involved in the rally. So our understanding is that it was a 15-year-old who was witnessing it and, and then did uh, do this band salute. Um, and it's our understanding as well that he is uh, speaking with police at the moment. Uh, no charges have been laid. Laura Mayers in Ballarat. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide today. Thank you, Sinead. Chances are you've heard of wave pools. And if you're a surfer, you've probably been mesmerised by clips online. They're popping up around the world. There's even one in Abu Dhabi. But in Australia, just one is open to the public. So why don't we have more here, given we're surf mad? Later, we're going to hear from developers who say it's not for lack of trying. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. In Queensland, the milk you pour into your coffee is now more likely to come from cows in Victoria than a dairy in the state. An exodus of independent farmers from Australia's dairy industry is changing the landscape of supply chains with processors shipping milk thousands of k's across the country and it's devastating generations of farmers. Joanna Marie has this story. This is a decision that I think for our whole family is actually it's pretty soul-destroying. Um, We've milked cows here for 117 years. Dairy farmer Robbie Raddle is saying goodbye to his beloved milkers on his Colston Lakes property three and a half hours north of Brisbane. Where are you going? You clear the flies off your face. This is Jasmine. Is that bloody silly dog, hey? The family was bottling milk under their own Central Queensland Farm Fresh brand, but couldn't secure a viable deal with any processor. We've now exhausted all opportunities speaking to other processors um, throughout the Queensland and New South Wales, seeing if we could get our milk away somewhere else and just drop the brand and go back to milking cows. The only, the only processor that comes through here has, um, has closed the door on us and said that they're not prepared to pick us up even though they literally drive right past our gate and happily drive to Victoria for milk, which they promote in Queensland. In Queensland, a steady decline of registered dairies over the past two decades has left the Sunshine State without enough drinking milk to supply local demand. If you take just Queensland-produced milk, um, we're, we're basically uh, at a 50% deficit, so about half of what, what's consumed. Matthew Trace, the president of advocacy group East Oz Milk, says much of it is now coming from interstate. There is, of course, a lot of milk not far over the border in New South Wales, but, but there's also a significant amount coming all the way up from Victoria. Most farmers would not say that milk price is the biggest issue anymore, but cost of production is the biggest issue. Um, farmers have suffered inflation like all other people in the economy and you know we've had fertiliser, grain, electricity, wages and of course rising interest rates as well now so we've got a super difficult situation where we're just struggling to keep up with those increased costs. Since 1980, Dairy Australia estimates the number of dairy farms has declined from 21,000 to just over 4,000 with most of those in Victoria. 
Robbie Raddle says there's plenty who would stay in the industry if they could. I think it's a real disgrace that we've got governments that have allowed the industry to fall to the levels that it has, that we are now a net importer of dairy products in Australia. Like that's, to me, that's just disgusting. The fact that we've got so many people who have been forced out of what was one of the backbone industries in the country, where we used to export thousands and thousands of um, tonnes and litres of, of dairy product, we're now a net importer. Look, at what point do governments at all levels take a look and say, we're doing things wrong? As an auctioneer, John Cochrane has consoled devastated dairy farmers after selling off their herds. Very hard. Um, it is really hard, actually, because at the end of the auction, I'm the poor bugger that's got to console the dairy farmer out behind the dairy shed because all these pets, if you like to say, and they do, farmers treat their cows, you know, because that's how they earn their living. They treat them well. And um, his lifetime work is gone. But he's also helping to keep farms in business. Since he purchased Kenilworth Dairies in 2017, trade has tripled. There's a number of bodies within Queensland and in Australia saying there won't be dairy farmers in Queensland by 35. Now, that is an extremely sad sad thought. I'm not that pessimistic. I think there will be um, because Queenslanders still deserve the right to have a local fresh product. It doesn't have to come banging up the highway from Victoria even though there is a lot of milk doing that now. Um, I think there's a percentage of Queenslanders that will pay that bit extra um, to be sure they've got quality local milk. Matthew Trace remains hopeful of attracting new entrants to the industry. Although land prices and set-up costs remain a barrier, he says it's a satisfying job. For, for me, just when you do your day's work and you produce something at the end of the day um, and you can physically see it, so you, you can go and have a look in the, in the milk vat and see there's a whole lot of milk there that you know, would feed thousands of people. And yeah, so you can see your achievement every day. So it's a real practical sort of way of living. That's Matthew Trace, the president of East Oz Milk and also a dairy farmer at Moy Pocket. And thanks to Joanna Marie for that story, which she did in collaboration with our other reporter, Jennifer Nichols. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, just yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. In the most remote parts of Australia, options for education can look very different to what's available in the city. Many families need to choose between boarding school, distance education or travelling to a nearby town. In the heart of Queensland, the tiny town of Mutterborough is fighting for a bus service to the nearest high school that goes to year 12. Now, that high school is in Longreach, which is 120 k's away. Grace Nakamura has put this story together for us. Living and working locally and the grounds and surrounds of the western rural lands, um, the kids don't have a lot of social structures that the city has. Staying local and in their environment out here and being able to come home every day is an important thing. Tammy Dagan has four kids, but getting them all through school when living in a remote area is a challenge. The tiny town of Mutterborough in central Queensland has a thriving primary, but no high school. 
We do have Aramac, which is 84 k's away, but it goes to only grade 10. And, like, I'm in the position where I have four children and one of my children is in year 10 this year. So if we were to go that way, like, it's only going to last a year for her and then where does she go? So that's sort of not a viable access point for the children that want consistency and to be here and to do their schooling really. Families in Mataburra are rallying for a bus service to go to Longreach, 120 kilometres away. It would mean their children can finish their schooling out west without having to go to boarding school or do distance education. Miss Dagan says without a bus run, some are considering leaving town. No one wants to go. Where, where do they move to? There is no housing available in a lot of the cities to go to. There might be high schools, but where's the housing? I'm in that tangle at the moment that at the end of the day, maybe my child will be out of schooling for the first term because we'll be unsure of what, how we're going to get him to boarding school. The Department of Transport and Main Roads has rejected their request for a bus service, but says it will consider financial assistance for parents to drive their kids. Despite the setback, residents are still hoping to change the decision. We've got about uh, 80 signatures on the petition. The town only has about 80 people in it. Basically, the uh, town is behind the bus being run. Mutterborough grandfather Neil Wicks has been one of the main campaigners for the bus run. It's pulling Mutterborough down as a town all the time because people won't, family people won't move in because they know they've got problems getting their kids to high school. Not everyone has got the money to send their kids to boarding school, even with the subsidies. It's still very expensive and, of course, it kills the town. Neil left primary school to start work, as did his son but they want to see the next generation finish their education, no matter what it takes. I think we all dream of it, really. At this stage, it looks like I might have to drive him over. Member for Gregory Lachlan Miller has thrown his support behind the small town's mission. If we don't do something about this, we're going to see families leave the district. And that means there's going to be more pressure on the school at Mutterborough and also uh, pressure on having services for towns like that. They provide a workforce to keep those families there. That's people that can add to the economy. This is a simple solution uh, to keep people in the Central West. I just hope the Minister will listen. For Tammy Dagan, something as simple as a bus run could keep her family together. I've had lots of thoughts myself being um, a single mother of four of them, like I said, and I've chose to live myself rurally out here because this is sort of where they grew up and where I always had them. Like, where else can you live when your little eight-year-old and go and get a loaf of bread? It's a lovely place to call home. Mutterborough mother Tammy Dagan finishing up that story from Grace Nakamura. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia Wide. Like, say, the swimming carnival, I can tell them about how, like, the races are. And as well, um, there's a big carnival, like, where we show our house colours. So you've never done that before? Um, no, not really, no. When modern surf parks burst into the mainstream with the arrival of Kelly Slater's groundbreaking surf ranch in California... Surfers hoped it would signal the dawn of the wave pool revolution. But a decade on, less than 20 have been built worldwide. And in surfing-obsessed Australia, just one is open to the public. Despite dozens of promising proposals, none have materialised in some of the surf meccas of Australia. Mackenzie Colohan has this story from the Gold Coast. 
When Aaron Trevor set out to create a man-made wave, he knew it wasn't going to be easy. I had no idea how hard it was going to be. The Surf Lakes founder and his team have successfully designed a marvel of modern engineering. The company's prototype near Yapoon in central Queensland, with its Mad Max-style plunger, is the largest and most powerful artificial surf break in the world. But of course, there's a catch. It's strictly invite-only, and only a lucky handful of professional surfers and celebrities have been allowed in. As Mr. Mr. Trevis found out proving it works is just the beginning. The really hard part, he says, is convincing outside investors and developers that his invention can generate enough revenue to justify a surf park's $50 million price tag. It's like a couple of years before we can surf the waves, which you know, I was hoping to be there already, but uh, that's the challenge. At this stage, it's really about the money, to be honest. Australia's first surf park, Urban Surf, opened at Tullamarine near the Melbourne airport in 2020. The company is close to finishing construction of its second at Sydney's Olympic Park. Surf Lakes has approval to develop an eco-resort and open its Yapoon site to the public, but is still trying to secure funding. A $100 million wave pool will break ground in the Perth suburb of Jandicott next year. The Gold Coast's first wave pool is a step closer to reality after Council last week granted conditional approval of a $300 million surf resort at Parkwood Village and two have been approved on the Sunshine Coast. But not only are surf parks complicated and costly to develop, they're expensive to run. Developers have come up with a solution. The emerging business model is for wave pools to serve as the centrepiece of a larger integrated development. But institutional investors still view them as a new and therefore risky phenomenon and are reluctant to fund them. The man behind the Gold Coast proposal is Parkwood Village Managing Director Luke Alschwager. His project has been in the works for more than three years and includes a hotel, brewery and 225 units. Diversifying the revenue makes sense from a business model point of view, but as a standalone wave pool, they certainly can work. Uh, they're a little heavier to lift financially if all the risks in one pot, like any investment, but the revenue numbers look really solid. I genuinely think there'll be four in this this region. It's one of the reasons we're going as hard as we can. We want to be the first one. The biggest problem is finding somewhere to put them. Surf park pioneer Andrew Ross co-founded Urban Surf and now chairs Aventure, the company planning to build the West Australian wave pool. He recalls spending hours on Google Earth, magnifying and measuring every green space in the Perth metropolitan area. I would have looked, I think, at more than 100 sites uh, over the past 10 years. We need a big footprint for the lagoon and so finding suitable sites of a size that you need in a location that you need for a price you can afford is always a challenge. The site identification process can take many years and then once you get into the planning and design phase, uh, again that can take several years and then the construction is several years. So you have to have a lot of stamina uh, and a lot of belief in what you're doing to stick with this. Proximity to large-scale power and water connections are a must, and the geotechnical conditions of the site are important too. Many suitable locations are either flood-prone or don't have a deep enough groundwater table and therefore stable enough soil to withstand the force of tonnes of water sloshing around. With a surf park in Melbourne and projects in the pipeline for Sydney and Perth, Queensland is the final frontier, but only a limited number of quality sites exist, and Mr Ross has watched nervously as many were snapped up for other developments. South East Queensland is, is literally almost the best place in Australia to try and deliver a surf park. Uh, you've got the highest per capita surfing population, 
great visitors, great climate. It's the home of surfing for many of the surf brands uh, on, on the Goldie there. Um, so it would be an ideal location. Surflakes has already licensed 18 projects and is in negotiations for another 20, but none have been built yet and they concede it's likely one will open in America and Brazil before Australia. In the world of wave pools, there are five main manufacturers competing for surf park supremacy. Each has a different way of making waves. Spanish company WaveGarden, the industry leader, uses a series of piston-powered paddles or modules that work in unison to create a wave that grows as it refracts off the side wall. Surflakes relies on a central plunger, but its 360-degree design allows for five separate waves of varying size and difficulty level simultaneously. Kelly Slaters employs a 100-ton hydrofoil, a metal wedge, that glides beneath the water, propelled along a track by a pulley system. Newcomers, Perfect Swell and Endless Surf, blast jets of compressed air from the bottom of the pool. Their pneumatic systems use more electricity, but the waves they produce are longer and highly customisable. How soon Queenslanders will get a surf park now depends on the success of a project 16,000 kilometres away. The O2 surf town on the outskirts of Munich is almost complete and due to open next year. It will be the first in the world to use endless surf, which remains untested at full scale. The Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast proponents have both signed on to use the technology. Mr Alschwager knows teething issues with the German pool would be disastrous and inevitably cause further delays. They're hard to get done. The more they get done, the easier it gets done. And so I think we're all in this together somewhat. What we're seeing now is is the groundwork of this industry that is now maturing with pools that are more commercially viable. Pretty audacious to say you're going to build something that's never been built before. And that has helped set the groundwork. So while it looks like it's taken a long time, people have been kicking these ideas around for nearly 20 years. Technology's only just got there. And I think that's the biggest issue. Mackenzie Callaghan reporting there from the Gold Coast. And it is worth checking out the engineering involved in these wave pools. The one at Yipung, the videos of it, is quite something. And that is Australia-wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.